Hello, my name is Matthew Kidman, and welcome to the latest edition of Success and More Interesting Stuff, brought to you by Livewire Markets. Investment platform group Hub24 was on its knees in 2013. The company had experienced a boardroom battle, an emergency capital raising, and a lack of leadership. Born out of stockbroking outfit Investor First, the company, which sounded more like a gym chain or a nightclub than an investment technology group, was losing millions of dollars a year and its future was doubtful. The boardroom bloodbath saw founder Otto Batula depart and Bruce Higgins installed as the new chairman. Keen for a fresh start, the company looked externally for a CEO with new ideas and a large dose of optimism. In a bold decision, they chose Andrew Alcock, an unknown quantity to the listed market. Alcock was running planning group Genesis Wealth Advisors, which was under the AMP umbrella. Hub share price in July 2013 hovering around a dollar a share and the company had just posted a loss of 9.7 million with funds under advice of just 400 million. Alcock obviously knew the industry better than most and saw a bright future for Hub. Fast forward a decade and things have changed. Hub, along with its close rival NetWealth, have ushered in the new breed of financial platform, leading the charge against the incumbents, MLC, BT and Alcock's old shop, AMP. Hub has over 80 billion in funds under advice and in financial year 2023 booked a net profit of just under $60 million. The company's share price today trades at over $33 a share with a market capitalization of 2.8 billion. Alcock, who as a youngster growing up on the North Shore of Sydney dreamed of playing keyboards in a band, has clocked up 10 years in charge of Hub and is not done yet. Along with his right-hand man, Jason Entwistle, and a burgeoning team, there is a belief that the surge towards the top of the charts will continue. Congratulations on a decade of excellent work, Andrew, and thanks for joining us today. It's been a busy week. You had an investor day. We did. Thanks for having us on to chat, Matthew. <laughs> and the investor day is always interesting. The last six or seven I've, I've seen are obviously there to help investors, but the downside is the share price always falls off the back of it. What's going oh, on there? Oh, that's unkind. <laughs> oh, look, I think well, every time you have an opportunity to talk to the market and shareholders and analysts, you you try to give them as current information as possible. So I think that Hub's uh, share price moves all the time because there's lots of interest in the company. Uh, we talked about our strategy. We talked about our growth and some of the what we call inflows that are coming into the business. But we also talked about the cost of some of those inflows and bringing them on board, which is always a one-off cost. I think that might have been a challenge. But um, having said that, the good news is we're looking at getting up to $16 billion in this year in, in uh, deposits, which uh, puts us in great stead for ongoing growth. They're big numbers when you consider when I said $480 million in the Amazing. intro. That's, what's that? That's 30, 40 times more in a year than the whole lot. Much it's been more an incredible exciting. journey. Much more exciting than a nightclub, as you said in the intro. Um, <laughs> but uh, and thanks for that. I never thought about Hub24 as a nightclub, but a good analogy. It would work. Um, look, hey, look, it's record-breaking. We, we didn't think we'd get to this level we we had you know the highest flows we had in one year was 11.7 billion which the incumbents and the instos hadn't done for decades uh and so to be sitting here saying it could be up to 16 if everything goes right this year unheard of unchallenged and it's it's great uncharted territory to be in yeah i think my original statement was a bit unfair about investor days leading to share prices down but that probably reflects a bit of a bear market that still hovers around us. But oh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't my presentation or the team's presentation. No, no I got good reviews from everyone. But let, let's go back now. What I was really curious about in the first instance was as a young person, you played the keyboards. I did. I'm still a young person. I haven't grown up. I don't want so to So you still up. play them, I gather? I do. I actually played them at uh, my wedding two years ago, to the surprise of many people who didn't think I had it in me. So... Uh, 
I came the grand piano at a wedding and I played a song and serenaded uh, my husband to be. Uh, so that was great. And so we'll take yeah. us back to when you were young. What what did you specialise in? Were you a, like an Elton John type keyboard or oh, Billy Joel or was it more? It was more ballads. It was more, I played at weddings. I did the odd TV commercial or session thing, but I played mainly at weddings with singers that I knew. So I was quite versatile, so to speak. I probably wasn't the best technically. It was self-taught. It wasn't from a classical background. I did study music in high school, but it was that that kind of stuff, more popular stuff for, for those sort of occasions. Right, and that. And that's how you earned your pocket money, I gather, in the early days. I did earn some pocket money that way. I did work at Meyer or Grace Brothers at the time as a retail shop assistant. So, yep. yeah. And so did you actually have ambitions to do that full time? Did you see yourself becoming a musician? Because that, that's a hard road to hoe. I did have two different ambitions, one which you haven't picked up in your research, which was I wanted to be a doctor yep. as well. So it was going medicine, but then the music thing distracted me from being a good student or studying properly. Um, but it was always medicine. I've always been fascinated about that as well. So yes, I wanted to be in a band or be a muso. At the same time, I, th- I had this passion or this fantasy about doing emergency medicine in a crisis uh, and that kind of thing. So, yeah. So you've given up on being a doctor, but not necessarily on the keyboards. That still goes. Yeah, still on the keyboards. Actually, at age 40, I had a job change and I did go to Sydney Uni uh, and participate in an information night about how you could become a doctor. And so with my degree, which was almost 10 years old at that time, I had enough marks to actually uh, qualify to do a four-year course to do medicine uh, if I wanted to. But I couldn't work out how to feed the family uh, (laughs) for that four or five years and start again. But I did seriously entertain it. Pretty intensive course. Mm. So growing up on the North Shore, where where were you? Kalani Heights, French's Forest, Northern Beaches Way. Right, and pretty middle class. Pretty middle class, pretty leafy, yeah. And... So your, your parents were both in business. I think your father was a property developer, your mum was an accountant, yeah, or did I get that of, the wrong uh, well, way sort around? Sort of. Mum was in the business of raising children. We had six. Um, six and kids. so she was running wow. a household, and I'm sure it made her a little bit demented over time uh, because we weren't exactly easy. But uh, Dad was a chartered accountant but also involved in property development and, and uh, you know consultancy services for clients. Yeah. And where did you fit in the six? Were you first Number six? Number four. Four. They say that's the first child, second time over. One, two, three, one, two, three. Well, they're always worried about the second kid, aren't they? What, the what middle the, child, yeah. Yeah, what do they say about the fourth? Uh, I think they say the fourth is the natural born leader, the one who holds it all together, and I might be making this <laughs> up right now. Well, it, it fits your profile. So just in that, there's a lot of people in the house, obviously, yeah. and everyone's doing their own thing. But the idea of business, which you obviously made a terrific career out of in, in the financial world, what, was there any talk of business, the property development that you said your dad was into what, what were the discussions um, like or was it a lot more just general stuff that you talked about over the table? Well, fell into is interesting. D- Dad always wanted a successor for the accountancy practice and, you know, you, know, can you, you should do this and poo-pooed the whole, the other career, which you'll talk about, co- computer programming and said, you're not going to make money out of that, not going to make money out of music, you should do what I did. Um, and uh, that wasn't a natural inclination for me, uh, but um, I did, you know, we'll get there later, study an accountancy degree. So the, it, it, there wasn't any coaching on business. I found my own way. I sort of fell into it through a series of steps. In fact, you know, accidentally fell into computer programming, if you like. Mm-hmm. And, and so you, did, you didn't have those small jobs like the paper round or... I did. I did do the paper round. So you were I quite... wasn't a captain of industry. <laughs> That, that came later. So what, what about, let's concentrate on school for a yep. second. So you went to one of the local schools. Yep. And you were a good student? 
Well, you had a lot of other things. The pause is deliberate. Was I a good student? Um, I I think I found school relatively easy and that means I was relatively distractible if we could use that language. So was I a good student? I probably wasn't as studious as I could be. Hence, I didn't get the marks to do medicine because I sort of, you know, did my own thing. I got distracted by cars and driver's licences and music and that kind of stuff. So uh, I, I did well, but I wasn't the best student I could be by any means. And I think that was partly growing up in a large household, not being seen necessarily, uh, or having different skills to the rest of the family who were sports mad and I was the academic musical one. So, yeah, so I wasn't a bad student, but I certainly wasn't the best student. And growing up in that family with a lot of people in the house, that make you independent? I was quite self-sufficient and independent. I generally had friends who were older than me or socialised in older circles. So roughly quite independent, yeah. And so that combination of reasonably good at school, Mm. but not necessarily overly focused and a lot of interests and being quite independent because of the, you know, partly because of the way the family um, was structured. Is, is that a good combination, do you think, as you go through life? Wow, I think there's easier ways to do it. I certainly did work hard in that retail job and funded, you know, expenditure and that kind of thing. I, I, I think that, um, you know, personally, I think that attention from parents to children is important. Uh, and I think sometimes, uh, you know, what I missed out on in a large family, I give back to my children. And I think that that would have, um, you know, that that lack, so to speak, I'm not denigrating my parents, but that lack, so to speak, causes you to have some drive or do your own thing because you need to, uh, because you're not necessarily seen or mollycoddled. So it makes you self-sufficient and build some backbone, if you like. However, I parented very differently. Yeah, and I think that was a bit of a product of the time. I would have grown mm. up in a similar era yeah. where you were told, don't get into trouble. And, and go out and occupy yourself for the day. Well, they didn't, they didn't know what you were doing at that point no, in time. Just, and Just don't get and, into trouble. And at that time, you, you could go to school or you could not go to school and not get in trouble for not going. It was quite a free and easy world back then, whereas now everyone knows where everyone is. Yeah, correct, and we can't avoid that. So you leave school. What's, what's the first step? I left school. I uh, ended up doing. I actually went to Bible college for a year, so that's not in the bio as well. So no, I didn't know. That. I did, did a years years ministry training, so to speak. Uh, I was still working in retail, and I was still earning some bucks playing the piano and uh, musical stuff. Right, um, that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, actually, after that, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. I actually went and worked in Dad's real estate business for a while. Mm-hmm. And that was at age 19. I don't think anyone at age 19 should work in selling real estate because you learn a lot, you see a lot of things, uh, you see a lot of different types of people. But I did well enough that I paid for a wedding and an engagement ring and I bought, uh, bought some musical equipment. And uh, And the next step is, the, is, you know, the computer programming thing, which I sort of fell into. So didn't know what I wanted to do. But when I was engaged to get married at age 21, which was very young as well, I started looking for stability and, and that was when the next step came. And the, the idea of going to university, you talked about you missed out on getting into medicine, which is a very high benchmark, but you could have gone to uni otherwise and done another course? I could have, but I chose to go part-time subsequently. So I started uni at age 21, part-time, yeah. So let's go forward. You're working at your, your dad's real estate agency. You're 21, you're saving money, you're getting married, and you're going back to uni. That's, yeah. a, that's a lot on your plate. It actually started about six months after I took the computer programming job. So I, I uh, so you left, you left your dad's real estate left dad's real estate office. Um, my wife to be at the time uh, found a computer industry training program back in the days when we used mainframes and green screens and that kind of thing. 
and uh, the computer industry in Australia needed talent. I did an application, I did an aptitude test. They were looking for smart people, so to speak, who passed an aptitude test to see if they could train them as computer programmers. You do a quick high-speed course at TAFE, you get indentured in a two-year cadetship, and that's what happened. So sort of fell into that, but the mathematical skills, the thinking skills and the smarts and the logic made me an ideal candidate for it. So started that. Um, and did you find that easy? Was it something you took up and, and you could do quite easily? Where you could apply the skill to a business problem or a real-life scenario, absolutely. If you were doing technical work or technology work about bits and bobs or data and databases, that wasn't as interesting to me. So where there was an application for a real-life scenario or, or a business challenge, absolutely, I was actually quite good at it because to me it was like a big problem. You solve the problem or the jigsaw puzzle. How do you bring creativity, strangely, the musical stuff and the mathematics to computer programming, how do you bring creativity with logic and structure and solve problems is a bit of an insight into who I am. And you went to uni at that point, at night. So working full-time, yeah. uni at night, what was... What was the inspiration to go to uni at that point? I think I realised that having a qualification would be good. And what did and you study? I studied. I did a Bachelor of Business at UTS in Sydney with an accounting major. So you, your dad won out eventually? He did win. I thought at the time that the combination of accounting and business skills with the IT skills was a unique combination. We're talking back in the, in the 90s. Uh, when computers were fairly new. People didn't have the internet uh, uh, for very long before that. So I think that combination was really good. I'd been doing structured project management. I'd been doing IT delivery type uh, uh, activities. Combining that with business knowledge, I think, was really a, a really smart decision in hindsight to create some foundations. Yeah, great combination. And at the same time, you mentioned at 21 you were getting married and was it long after before you were having kids? I had two children during that seven-year part-time university study. So I worked... Sleepless. Sleepless. Diet Coke was great at 2am when you had to cram for uh, an exam. But uh, I had, you know, success career-wise. I kept getting promotions uh, and ended up running, you know, an outsourcing gig for Tyndall at the time. I had like 80 IT people while I was still studying at university. They were a client? They were a client. So Tyndall had outsourced its IT requirements to a French-Canadian company at the time that's now owned by Fujitsu. And so I actually was, uh, and you know, running that outsourcing gig with all sorts of IT people whilst studying, whilst having two children uh, before I finished the degree. It, that, sound, that sounds like a lot of pressure to me. Um, it was hard work, but I think you get out you, what you put in and I was right. pretty determined. And you give a busier person job, right? Because yeah. they're, they're on the run. But j just thinking back then, was that your first introduction when you went to Tyndall in the finance industry? Uh, I actually, uh, in IT, I'd done some work for CBA and New South Wales Treasury as clients. I actually worked in, in transport industry for TNT and ANSET at the time. It was my first uh, cadetship role. But I ended up working uh, in the consulting gig for different types of clients, government, uh, financial. Uh, Tyndall was the first time I really got into wealth management. It was largely mm. life insurance and managed funds and corporate super. Yeah. Yeah, and did, was that an eye-opener or you just thought it was another industry? Look, it became interesting as an, and an eye-opener because you had the real-life problems. You were trying to help people protect their future with insurance or you're trying to help people grow their investments or, you know, superannuation. It was new in Australia. We all needed it. So I could apply to it and it actually did, I suppose, open my eyes to how technology and business together work and how being in IT, you learn project management and change management skills, how to get from A to B. 
And in business, quite often, people had grown up in a functional silo. They were a customer service person or an accountant or an investment professional, but they weren't necessarily good at delivering large change projects. The IT piece and the change management combined with the functional services thing really allowed me to move from, or make that jump from running the IT to running parts of the business. Because it strikes me, as we said in the intro, when eventually you end up at Hub, and you seem to have a vision for it that maybe some of the others had found hard who had been involved prior. Is that Do you think you have a skill at assessing something and understanding the business as a whole quite quickly? Because it sounds like your original jobs back in those days, mm. you had that skill base that you had an overview of the business and what it needed to do to, to um, produce the products and the services that clients needed. Because a lot of people don't do that. As you say, they work in silos. I think I absolutely naturally did, or I pre-consciously did. Did I actually acknowledge I had those skills or understand that? I think even now I'm understanding some of the skills and the strengths I might have. And sometimes it's a bit, you know, is it arrogant or humble? You know, which which pl- way do you, you view that? I, I learn more about myself all the way. So clearly I had the skills, but I didn't think I had the skills, so to speak. I just there was a bit of self problem. I was just being me. I was doing me. Certainly there was imposter uh, syndrome there. I hadn't grown up in wealth <laughs> management. I had people working in my team who were serious professionals running operational outfits for superannuation. I didn't have that background. I had a technology background. But I could solve the problems or see the issues, and that was part of my nature or part of my character. Yeah. Very good skill. So let's go forward from there. You mm. finish your degree, you've got the two kids, and then do you change jobs again? Yeah, so after Tyndall Royal the Sun Alliance and it became Astron, uh, I went and worked for Australian Administration Services, now owned by Link, but at the time was uh, looking after more superannuation accounts in this country than there were people with jobs because <laughs> we didn't have super consolidation. So I uh, worked... I, I think I had six at one stage. Yeah, I had a few too. And we all wanted to keep the insurance benefits and we didn't have the time. We probably didn't care about super, which is a, a shame. But um, yeah, so AAS looked after the admin for REST, Care, Super, Hester, all those large industry funds. I had a stint in the industry fund land taking the superannuation experience I got with Tyndall to that uh, avenue. Yeah. And you were running that? Ended up running that as the CEO. Oh, so you didn't go there in the first instance as the CEO? No, I went. I was hired to say, could you help us take this large volume, high scale capability of industry super? We've got this kit and this outfit. Can you actually help us take that to the retail world and potentially work Using with Macquarie, your IT skills, Westpac or others to say, can we do your back office? So the whole play was, could we take the, the AAS skills or Australian Administration Services skill set to the retail market and be an outsource provider to retail superannuation providers. That was the the mission uh, and the goal and, and the role that I was hired for, um, as well as when I got there, finding out there was a little bit to clean up with some acquisitions that had gone awry, and that certainly cut my teeth as well. So the goal was that, but I ended up running the business, yes. So that, that's another good building block to where you ended by the looks of it. You probably didn't know it at the time, but you were... You were building a good um, knowledge base yeah. of, of various parts of the industry that you were eventually arriving. I'm in Sydney, but I went to Melbourne day one with the CEO uh, and uh, went to talk, meet some people in a subsidiary that they'd purchased. By the end of the day, I said to the CEO, I think I need to stay here for a few days. So I had to go and buy clothes to stay because I actually couldn't just leave and go back to Sydney. Yet I didn't realise uh, that that so it was the situation. So I found myself in a little bit of hot water or getting them out of some hot water in some really technical superannuation stuff. And so that crisis management, that emergency medicine skill, if you like, 
that understanding the pieces of the puzzle came to the fore and you learn an immense amount of uh, you know useful stuff when you're dealing with trustee issues, beneficiary issues. You, le- you learn a lot in adversity or crisis well, it's quite you complex. can take into business. Yeah. And so you're good under an emergency, you think, or, or a situation that needs a lot of attention I, quickly? I think I think very quickly in that space. Am I good? Well, I, I hope so. But certainly I get motivated or driven by how do we solve the problem and the challenge. That's what, what drives me. So it puts the, the filters on and off you go. So you, you, you end up being CEO there, so you're getting leadership skills as well. How mm-hmm. big was that organisation? I think I had probably 1,500 people there when I was running it. The job before, I had three or 400. So it was, uh, if you measure it by people, in terms of uh, money, the business was probably, you know, $100, $200 million revenue. Mm. Yeah, so it was a decent, and mm. a lot of people. So you were learning on, on the way through as well how to manage people. I think I was growing up. I was understanding <laughs> that, and I was understanding myself because you still, you know, in this world, sometimes you get thrown into situations you're not sure you can handle, but you make a fist of it. And I think the fear of a role helps you execute correctly. If you're not sure or uncertain and don't have the confidence to say, I can walk in those shoes, you actually do a better job sometimes because you know what's going to hit you. So if we said fight or flight, to use, use that old term, you, you would fight. You would, I'm you'd bury fight, yourself in buckle it down, try. keep going, push through, uh, make it happen. Uh, you can do this. Yes, not no. Half full glass, not half empty. Yeah. So that, that'll be important when we, when we get to HUB, but there's one more step between now and then, Yeah, which is you went to Genesis Wealth. I did. I um, went to work... Which is at, another part of the industry. Yeah. So in, you know, by that time I had corporate super, industry super, life insurance, IT, product management, marketing, and customer service skills. I hadn't worked directly in the advice part of the value chain. And uh, I was headhunted to go and join Challenger at the time that owned Genesis Wealth Advisors as a COO. Uh, and I think some of the skills I had were, were valuable in that context to take that business and, and help it grow. And so that, that's a different group of people altogether. We all know wealth advisors are kind of different breed, and so they require different management skills. But that, I don't know what you mean, Matthew. No, well, I'll make that comment. You don't have to agree. The industry has changed quite a lot, and, and they play a very, very vital role. But in the early days, it was very much a cottage industry. Yeah, you could argue it still is, but it's it's professionalising very quickly. And Genesis itself got passed around a bit, didn't it, in terms of ownership over time? Oh, look, before I got there, it had been Associated Planners, and I think Challenger um, had a business called Garrisons. So Associated Planners wanted to buy Garrisons and, and actually turned around the other way. Challenger said, well, how about we buy you guys? And we merged the two together, those two advisory groups, and it became Genesis from that point of view. So, yeah, uh, it, it had had a genesis of its own, so to speak. And eventually end up at the AMP? Yeah, AXA purchased Genesis from Challenger in exchange for their annuity book. Challenger was a pension annuities business, so there was sort of a trade sale there. And AXA, as we know, ended up being purchased outright by AMP. Yeah. And so you ended up there. So that, that was another good training ground. But then comes to 2013, you're headhunted or you yeah. see an ad in the paper for a CEO of a listed company? How I, did that work? I didn't see an ad in the paper. I was headhunted. In fact, I was resistant to the opportunity. Uh, the person who headhunted me uh, said, no, you really need to look at this. And I went, mm, another platform? I'm not sure the market needs another platform. Not for me. Uh, and because platforms at the time, if I remember correctly, were seen as something that there were a lot of them, as you just made mention of. They needed a lot of money to be updated all the time yeah. and quite a complex business. 
Uh, they, they are a complex business because they do so much and they do so much in different legal frameworks. They support a superannuation fund. They support multiple structures and they are capital intense. Uh, and there was a lot of them. Every bank had one and every wealth management company had one and there was probably too many to make them profitable. And the you know, the industry researchers had always said there's going to end up being three or four in Australia. Uh, you know, is it a mugs game to get on board? Uh, so I was a little bit resistant. and But, you know, the persistence from the search firm paid off because when, when I had a look, it was quite interesting what was there. Uh, but what ticked your interest, given you had some preconceived ideas, which I think a lot of people did? Yeah, I was at uh, AMP. I was chairing an investment committee for Genesis with about $10 billion of, of client monies that the advisors were looking after. And we were building model portfolios and, and, and putting on the approved list of the products you could use and those you couldn't use and asset allocations. But it was all pretty much unitized and managed fund product. Mm-hmm. Yet we were needing something else. We thought there was more value in what you'd call an SMA or a separately managed account i'm getting a little bit technical but different vehicles which remove some of the friction from unitized structures to directly held assets go and have a look at hub 24 and i met jason entwistle and i met bruce higgins and had a look at and went wow you've actually got what i need inside amp to deliver more efficiency more flexibility for advisors and and uh and get better outcomes for clients you've actually built this thing and, so that, uh, that in your eyes, they were leading edge as opposed to bogged down with the old world? Yeah, they had a clean sheet of paper. They had a paperless business. It solved a problem that, that I'd only just woken up to existed. And, you know, the scales come off your eyes in terms of there's another way of delivering access to uh, investment managers' intellectual property or, you know, get the benefit of their investments where you could buy their stocks in a basket rather than buy the units in a managed fund. And and that thing had... that. That approach has a lot more utility and, and potential benefits for customers. Well, it's grown astronomically over the well, years. it's been the history and the secret to hub success. It's how we started off. That said, that, that was the light at the end of the tunnel, that you could see that there was a product that was heading in the right direction and was off to a running start. But the actual corporate structure, and I wasn't joking in the introduction, there was the, the boardroom battle, I remember it in 2012, was a bit of a bloodbath. Um, it, it was it was tough. There were different factions, mm. and the business was losing money and needed that capital quickly. So it, it required some believers to say we can get to the other side because it was losing money. It was played out publicly, absolutely. I think for me, the fact that there was a a product set that met a need. So back to what ticks my boxes. This is actually a solution to solve a problem, and it seems wrong not to adopt this solution. In fact, are the incumbents. Uh, in this industry trying to steer everyone away from this new kind of technology because disruption and technology can scare some people. Uh, having a look at that, that challenge ticked my box. The ability that the business had to rapidly innovate and had won awards as, I think, the, the catch cry, cry in from the researchers was Hub24 delivers at warp speed. And I stopped and had a look at where they were a year ago and where they were today. And I looked at the culture. And AMP wasn't necessarily the you know, the best place for me to work with my background and, and how I saw and thought about things. I was more innovative, entrepreneurial, more small business to make stuff happen. Talk than, about a company bogged down in legacy. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to make it about AMP as such, but um, it, it, it didn't, you know, it suited me far better. And I knew I had to back myself and take a risk and jump. But culturally, and to satisfy me, it was like, yep, no brainer, let's do this. Um, and, but a big, and, and big, big decision... Regardless, I mean, the company, if it kept burning money, might have run into financial troubles. It wasn't out of the woods, even though it raised money. That was just to get it to its next level. Three kids, you mm. know, a, a lot of dependency, a lot of responsibility. 
It, it's a big decision to make. I think in life you have to work out uh, what works for you, what goes with the grain and against the grain. Uh, and where do you sit? You've got to get your own ethics, morals and values lined up and your own uh, motivators lined up properly or you're unhappy in your job. Uh, and so, uh, you know, from that perspective, to see uh, something, uh, you know, a business that could change the landscape that was doing something good, that was creating better outcomes for people. Uh, and um, it was a problem solver. Met, it was a problem solver. But the people I met, uh, absolutely, you know, having met Jason Entmissle and Bruce Higgins, to say, I can actually work with these guys and do something special. So you start to believe in yourself and back yourself. I think the penultimate thing was, are you going to back yourself and jump out of the large corporate where you're a number or you're dismissed because you don't fit into a certain mould or a certain club? You might be inconvenient or you might speak out of turn. Um, you know, and that really is my history in, in those sort of places. It's, it's the smart guy who's got a different idea, but if it rattles cages, well, let's just shut that book. Um, here was an opportunity to open that book and work with really smart people where we said, we can do this. This is amazing. If we're going to knuckle down and do it together, we can make a fist of this. Still yeah. pretty brave, though. A lot of people don't do that. They might see the opportunity and stay with the incumbent. I was warned. I was warned that I might be shutting it down if I took the job. You know, <laughs> That's I took right. the job. I think you made the right decision in hindsight. Okay, let's go back to 2013. Yeah. Um, first three months, we did the old 100 days, the presidential 100 days. You move into the job. And we've set the backdrop in the introduction, what it was like, where it was coming from. What, what did you have to do? What were the first three months, if three or four months? Well, what did you have to achieve? Very quickly, I had to understand the people and the capability and what we had in the product set and then the clients and the customers. Um, so it was quickly getting an inventory. I was very fortunate. A lot of cleanup had been done because when you've got a business that's, that's losing a lot of money, you want to get it run tight. Jason had done a great job at, at doing that. He was acting CEO at the time. Um, so he had streamlined the business and it jettisoned out of that corporate mess that you referred to. Um, the, the first thing was understanding the customers and the work that was in progress. I very quickly uh, had to focus on a particular thing. There were three deals or three clients that had been won uh, to implement. On arrival. Manage your arrival. You had there three. Three deals that had been done by the team before I got there. Uh, and, you know, hurtling towards how do you implement these? How do you launch the, the PDS or get the product in market? How do you put the portfolios on? And so, you know, the, the issue I had at Genesis with wanting this kind of product, other licensees had that as well. And so, you know, very quickly I had to get to how are we going to land three of these at once? The business has only ever done once before. There's not really good, strong project management skills in the business. There's subject matter experts, there's technical expertise, but there's not change management, there's not take to market as much as there needed to be and not with three at once. And did you have to actually do some of that work yourself? Or could you recruit on the run and get it done? I did bring in some project management. I did have a look at it. I got involved, absolutely. I went went and met the clients and I stepped back and said, okay, well, we need plans. If you want to get from A to B, what are the plans? What are the activities? What are the tasks? Let's let's do that in a structured way rather than, you know, quickly ramming it together with, with a headcount of 28. So I did hire project management. I did get involved. I rolled up my sleeves. I worked with uh, the team. I brought my skill set in alongside... Jason's skill set who had deep product expertise and understanding what we're trying to achieve. Between us and the sales team and the ops team, we, we built it out. And so you implement the three customers. Out of 10, what would you give, you, give the company a score in those early heady days when you were doing things on the run? I actually learnt a lot. We got stuff done faster than I thought was possible. 
so hub shaped me, if you like, or hub 24 shaped me because the, you know, launching a product to market sometimes takes a year. You know, we did that in 12 weeks. We got three white labels out in 12 weeks and you very quickly learnt that the technology was so configurable. Sometimes the hardest part about that was, was building the regulated document or the prospectus document than the actual build. So I learnt that with smart people, with uh, a good foundation, you can do things quite rapidly. What I brought was the safety and the belts and braces and the planning and the structure. Um, but, um, you know, it shaped me. I, I think we did an amazing job to get three white labels out and, and three of them were, the, you know, the mainstay of, of helping Hub close that revenue gap or get the growth such that when you go to market to ask for capital, people can see mm. the progress you're making. If you can't demonstrate project uh, progress, you're dead in the water, particularly if it's a fintech. So we could demonstrate sales and growth progressively and actually go back to market and say, this is going to work. Um, can you please provide some capital? So the, you enter a period of confidence because you've delivered on this and, and obviously you're getting the right skill set within the business. At the same time, the industry, the, the advice industry is starting to change and change dramatically. I think 2013. Absolutely. Onwards, there was a there was a level of change over the next six, seven, eight years and we know that the banking inquiry was part of that at the back end. So there was a few tailwinds, do you think, at the time? And, and that, that was fortuitous that, that you did have this skill set and that the industry was changing and moving your direction? Or would you say, but yeah, but we had the right product and, and the right school base to take advantage of it? Thank you for not saying lucky. <laughs> a lot of people well, say, well, a lot of people say that. a good thing, but you've got to be in the right position to get oh, luck. I think you've got to have the skills and you've got to know what you're doing. And so you, you play to opportunities or, or the landscape you're in. And if you can see that, then you can do well. I think my eyes had been opened up by that experience of launching three products quickly and launching a investor app that today you'd say you'd be embarrassed to launch that, but we launched a market-leading investor app in six weeks. I'd never seen that happen in any of the roles I'd had before. So all of a sudden I had this belief that you can do stuff, let's be positive. Along comes FOFA, or the uh, Future of Financial Advice Reforms in 2013, which was about vertical integration, rebates, proper disclosure. Uh, we were able to because we had a clean sheet of paper and we didn't have those kind of uh, arrangements in place with distributors or licensees to build product and services that moved past that, whereas everyone else was having to deal with some of those regulatory changes. We actually had a model that played to that in that uh, we had what you'd call a naked rate card. We, we had the ability to put product in market that wasn't conflicted without conflicted remuneration, but at the same time piggybacking on a technology revolution called managed accounts. And so everything started to change. People with the large Titanics couldn't turn them fast enough and the nimble, agile innovators like ourselves and a few others could excel and launch new product. And off you went. And the incumbents struggled and lost Absolutely. a lot of money over that time. And, and of course, a hub is starting to get a name. The share price is starting to move. And, and along comes Net Wealth out of Melbourne. It lists, I think, um, a few years after that, after you joined. And so the two of you were seen as like competing rivals, the two new kids on the block. Is there a lot of competition between the two firms and or or is it an industry where you both come along and there's room for both of you? How my, do you see it? My natural inclination is to answer with a joke or a witty reply and avoid the question. I absolutely respect the net wealth business and the team there. Um, we wouldn't be as good as we are and, and maybe they wouldn't be as well if it wasn't for this level of competition. And, you know, iron sharpens iron. Um, they had been in business earlier than Hub. Uh, we got the They've jump. They've been around for a long time, yeah, haven't they? We got the jump with managed accounts and I think they said, wow, what's happening here? And you're right, the instos had their head in the sand 
And because they had entrenched managed fund or unitized models, they didn't want to disrupt. They didn't want managed accounts because it challenged part of their business model. So incomes, which is always hard to hard to face those kind of situations. So we are uh, we are fiercely competitive, but also very respectful of net wealth. And and I think that Australia is should be thankful that there's two companies that excel in this, because it does get a better proposition for the consumer. So at this stage, the industry's growing, um, hubs on its way. I don't know. We're at that stage. We're probably 2015, 16, 17 range. Whether you thought or oh, we'll get to 80 billion, and now you've told everyone 92 to 100 billion of funds under advice. Was that vision already there? Could you see the ability for the ind- for, for the company to grow to those kind of levels? Uh, no. So the journey was progressive, and I don't mean to sound like I'm not aspirational, but you know, when you're losing eight to twelve million dollars a year, and I started with three hundred and forty-eight million dollars of clients' funds, so 0.3 billion, and now we're at eighty billion. You know, you progressively have goals, and so can you see getting to two billion, or can you see when you break even? And so you you continually extend the horizon, or so you, you break it down like that. Yeah, yeah. And so you don't want to live in a fantasy and say, how do we get to a hundred billion? Um, paying the bills next week and getting to two billion or break even was a lofty goal. And in fact, in some cases, people thought that the journey once you got to break even, the journey was to sell hub to an insto. Let an, the typical thing innovate, build something, get a groundswell, and have a big fish take it over because they can't do it. Um, so, uh, and, and did you articulate those kind of goals to senior management to the key staff all the time? We had goals every year about what we wanted to achieve, where we wanted to get to, at what point we'd break even. We had to communicate it to the market. We uh, created a way of financially reporting saying that if we weren't investing in growth, here's how much profit we would have made. So we created this concept of an operating EBITDA uh, to create faith in the investor community so they could see progress. So we took stuff below that, that line, so to speak, of investment and took it out and said, the business is improving, it's operating EBITDA, but we're continuing to invest. And who came up with that idea to present it that way? Uh, it was a CFO and the chair at the time. I, I think we did that and I, I went along with that. It was a great um, way of communicating to the market so you could see ongoing growth. So th- then we get to the back end of the decade and there is obviously the banking inquiry and so that was another um, uh, change in, in terms of the whole finance industry in Australia and where we saw a lot of the big banks just apart from advisory altogether. Was that another kick along and, and were, were you in a really good position to take advantage of it? Because it seems like you've re-accelerated through that period. I think it was an accelerator. I think we had the foundations and the ingredients and people could see the success. The big guys started off thinking, don't worry about Hub, they'll go broke, they're not charging enough, they're not sustainable, they're breaking the law, they don't know what they're doing. You have all that kind of stuff going on around you and we just kept our head down below the parapet and just said, let's just keep going. And what what did they mean breaking the law? Oh, you know, we were doing things differently uh, and others hadn't hadn't thought about how to package product in the way we were. Um, And so there were questions around, is the model right? Even the regulations in this country, you know, hadn't thought about how managed accounts could work. And, and there were gaps in that because, you know, as e- even still recently, we still look backwards to fix the problems of the past rather than look forward to the regulations we should have. So it was uncharted to some extent. You were dragging industry along. Yeah, but the outcome was you, you were giving clients a better outcome. You were generating what, what you and I know as alpha for execution alpha for investors. They were having bigger nest eggs to retire if they had good advice. They're having better tax management. You couldn't deny this was good for the customer. Um, but what's the rules and the framework? That was where people are questioning, how do they do this? How do 
we do this. So, you know, we, we were up against that. But I think we had the foundations in place and the strategy that we were already being successful and people started getting a bit worried about that. And then you saw the banks implementing managed accounts and starting to follow. The foundations were there. Matthew, I think it was a revolution in terms of technology and mobile computing that was the right place for us to be. Uh, pensioners were using apps to look at their superannuation, but they didn't know how to log into a desktop. Uh, so we, we played to the technology revolution, the managed accounts revolution, using, using technology to give you access to directly held assets rather than units. That was another revolution. Uh, the best interest for a customer or the, the you know, customers are all of a sudden engaging and waking up to they don't want conflicts, they want the best outcome, the banking scandals. All those factors led to us being able to be successful by bringing skills, talent and the product to market. The Royal Commission accelerated that because you saw a, a rapid decline in terms of advisory and the vertical integrated models. We already were, were on the right foundation. It just made it move faster. So at that point in time, you've grown astronomically. You've gone into profitability at the back end of that period, which took quite a while, but as you said, you needed to grow and to invest mm. in the platform. A lot of people around you. Can you talk a little bit about what kind of manager you turned out to be and, and what you see yourself as today? Because at the core of it, there is technology, but without the people, you've mentioned that a few times, they're the key, whether they can deliver it. I'm very fortunate and very humbled to have had a great team of people to work with and to have worked on building a great team of purpose-driven people, people who are thinking about outcomes and change and doing something positive as opposed to their next step on the ladder or their role or their perception. And so we're a very different business. We hire ambitious people, but people who actually see a problem want to solve it. I'm still learning about myself. Uh, you know, what type of leader am I? I try to create enough room for people to excel and grow. I'm not a micromanager, but I can absolutely... But you know your business well. I've sat in countless presentations where yep. you field a lot of different questions. I can come across And unless the you're top. bluffing, you seem to know what you're talking about most times. Well, I, I think, Matthew, the, the history and all the roles I've played and being in the crisis, I can go very deep very quickly in most areas of the business and I can go across the top very quickly. So that allows me to enable or empower people, but also give them a steer. And so, yep, I'm a great manager in terms of being able to have lots of balls in the air or lots of plates spinning at the same time and understand where they all go or join all the dots and translate strategy into execution quite rapidly. I think that's the skill I bring. I'm not the best project manager. I'm not the best leader. Uh, I'm not the best product person, but I can bring all that together and translate that and communicate that and inspire people. I'm learning that I can actually inspire people by the way I communicate. I never saw myself as that person, but I've learned through success, and it's our success, not my success, how to play that role. So I'm not a command and control person, but I can. I can deep dive very quickly. Uh, at times, I have to bring the reins back and hold tight. You might call that, uh, as Bruce Higgins would say to me, loose tight management, give people the freedom, but know when you've got to bring it in tight. In a crisis, I'll take control. Uh, where something's not right, I won't be shy and I'll bring it back on track. But I'm not a megalomaniac. Um, and so, you know, I'm still learning about me and how to motivate people. We have fun. We're authentic. We're different. And that in itself creates uh, motivation for people to want to go the extra mile. It's lonely at the top, though, when you're running a company. So who, who would you lean on? You're certainly busy. <laughs> Always busy because everyone wants, wants some of your time and you've got to make decisions all the time. But who did you lean on or who, who, who do you still lean on as a sounding board or, or yeah. as, I hate to use the word mentor, we've all got mentors, but um, 
Well, it's a good question. I'm quite a transparent, open person. In fact, some people would be surprised about how open I can be with the team. The team will know if I'm having a bad day or if I'm struggling <laughs> with something. It's not something I hide. I'm not trying to be Superman with a cape. I'm trying to be real. And I think that vulnerability actually helps the team bond and gel and, and say we're in it together. So whether it be your chairman or directors or whether it be friends or whether it be people in your team, in different cases it's different people uh, or, or different scenarios. But I'm fairly transparent. I tend to wear my heart on my sleeve within reason. Mm-hmm. And I think that creates reality in relationships. So, but it can be lonely. It can be everyone wants a piece of you. And as as the company grows, the expectation from your team is different. The expectation from shareholders is different. The expectation from the market is different. And you wake up all of a sudden uh, with people thinking you you might be a success story or a superhero or some sort of exceptional human being. I'm just me doing me doing what we did, trying to solve problems and puzzles. But I have to play a role that in some cases means I have to, you know, take on certain personas or, or, or play that role in a certain arena the right way. That's difficult. That's tiring. It, that can be not lonely, but it can certainly, uh, you know, it takes discipline and thinking about if you're talking in front of 200 people, what is the role you're playing? You're trying to give them confidence and security that they should invest in your business. If you're talking to 200 staff, you're trying to, to explain to them the purpose in what they're doing and helping somebody retire you have to take on those roles and those personas in different circumstances. And I'm learning about that and I'm becoming more comfortable that that's part of my role. The leadership is more uh, of the role now than it was the management or the, the actual being on the tools. What, what do you dread most? What, what, what's been the worst moment? I quite often get asked what keeps you awake at night. Um, there's these standard questions which shareholders or analysts ask you, what keeps you awake at night or how should we think about this? And I sometimes cheekily want to say bad TV or binge watching <laughs> something, um, but um, I sleep quite well. Generally, I'm, I, you couldn't do this role without compartmentalising stuff and taking stuff in your stride, which you learn over time. But how do you operationally execute? So the, the strategy is great, the sales are great, the product is great, but when you're growing at such a fast rate, you've got to have the right pieces in place to do the job. You can't actually win the business and then deliver bad service or long response times. And do you have the scalability in the business to service 70, 80 billion dollars when you were building it for two to five billion? So how do you put those planks in place to make sure you don't skip a beat operationally? That's really hard because you're trying to execute on strategy. You're trying to market and talk to people about why they should get on board. At the same time, you're buying businesses but we're number one in customer service. It's really hard to do that and you could lose that crown uh, or lose that position and we have to fight hard for that. So it's the operational certainty that I think is the hardest part of the role and the accelerator and the brake. People want profits, shareholders want profits, but you need to invest for growth. That's that. Do you that fear that w- the fear one day that the, you don't make your forecast, the share price gets hit hard? I mean, we've, we've come from a point where the share price is very low at one stage, but over the, the journey it's had... It's gone up 33 times. It's, it's been a tremendous journey. Um, Do you worry about that? I mean, that's, that's what I worry about as an investor, that one day I come in and I feel a bit sick that something's gone wrong. I actually don't worry about it. I feel it because I feel it far more because, you, you know, personally I've been on the journey for a long time. I've got a lot of my own wealth tied up mm-hmm. in the success of this business. But I don't think that way. It doesn't drive me as much as what's the problem, what are we trying to solve, where's the customer, how do you deliver excellence and delight your customers and those things. They don't 
sort themselves out, you can have good financial discipline. But if you have a sustainable value proposition that can beat your competitors, those things will sort themselves out of time. So I don't stress or worry about it. I feel it. I know we're alive, but it's not my primary driver. And you've, you've got rid of your chairman. He, he's retired now. It's very unkind. <laughs> so Bruce was an inch, probably the right person for the job in those early days. Pretty tough. And I, I knew him from a previous life. And always fairly, um, I wouldn't say he's grumpy, but he's fairly direct. So has that been a good environment to work under? Because the other, the other people that you have to satisfy as a public company is your board, which takes up time for management. Well, well and they're your words. No, no, I, no I, I, I will I'm just trying to put a bit of colour words. around Bruce. Um, I actually enjoy, enjoy um, his company when I've met him, but that's the kind of individual he strikes Bruce me. Bruce is an exceptional man with an exceptional talent for driving uh, things forward and a tenacity. And we wouldn't have done what we did without that skill set. So, um, yeah, he's uh, he's a tough cookie, and so he should be, and so am I. It's and worked, right? And we've had times where, where we've had to reconcile opposing views, but together we would absolutely say that we've actually created a, an Australian success story with, you know, Bruce, I, Jason, the rest of the exec team. Um, we've done something that others haven't done, and it's taken that mix of skills. And, you know... Bruce is an amazing person to have got cut through. He's opened the way for me at times. He's slowed me down deliberately at times the right way. You know, I would not be here today and Hub would not be the successful business had it not been for for Bruce and the role that he's played. And everyone's an individual and, and you know, he's, he's shy. <laughs> I was being a bit unkind. But, you know, he, he would say that himself. He's a tenacious, um, strong person. And the business needed that, and I've learnt from that, and and we've learnt from each other. Yeah, so we haven't got rid of him. He's moved on and <laughs> retired. He's having a career break, and I will miss him, as I said to him very much. We'll, we'll all miss him, but, uh, you know, it's not an end of an era. There's more to come, but, uh, you know, there was moments where I went, wow, this is, this is a shift. Mm, very good. So let's go forward to the next decade. I'm going to talk out of school a little bit. I ran into you a little bit earlier this year, and you are buying a coffee, and you're reflecting on a decade at the, at the company. And I think you said to me, well, I, I think we've still got a long way to go. I'm looking forward to the future. So tell us a bit about the future. I don't know if we want to go out another decade, but is, is there a good period ahead for Hub? And, and if we, you know, not just this year, but sure. in the years to come, does it have such a bright future or does it get harder from here in some respects? bit of both. I, I absolutely start with the I'm not done yet or we're not done yet. And I say that publicly quite often. I think that technology still has the potential to unlock more value for customers. And if we're serious about people in this country being self-funded retirees and protecting their wealth, and if technology can create more value, then let's bring it on. So from that perspective, the challenge that I saw day one is still there. There's lots of ideas, international markets, alternative investments, democratising assets and opportunities that were only available to certain parts of the population. Uh, and using our scale to lower costs or improve efficiency is very exciting. Um, so I think that there's far more to do that we can do. So there's a spring in the step uh, in terms of the aspiration and the challenge that's there. Uh, in terms of me personally, hey, I've still got a lot of energy. Hopefully I look this good when I'm 10 years older. Um, <laughs> thanks for that. Uh, but, um, you know, the, the decade for Hub24, I think there's more opportunity today than what there was when we were smaller. And there was always opportunity. If you're able to outgun or think about a customer proposition and go to market with it and be true to label uh, and build something that's sustainable, you're going to find a niche. You're going to disrupt as long as you've got capital and you can grow. We're now at a size that we can do more. It's harder. You're a bigger business. You've got to deal with reg change. You've got to deal with other changes. So it costs more to, to maintain the current business model. 
But if you keep your innovative spirit and you keep thinking about what you can achieve, I think the opportunity set is greater. There are less competitors today than there were a few years ago. There's certainly less compelling competitors. So whilst you earlier said, look at the range of competitors, there's only two or three of them that are growing in this marketplace. There's less growing today than there were 12 months ago. And I think the gap between the market leaders and the incumbents is increasing in terms of our capability. Uh, and so I didn't think we'd have this rich set of opportunity ahead of us. It's, it's, for there, it's there for us to either take or for us to stuff up, pardon the colloquial term. But um, I, I think there's far more growth, there's far more utility. We really want to build an end-to-end what we call the platform of the future, where it's quite agnostic to whether your, your assets are held in a super fund or outside a super fund or in custody or directly held that we can make it easier for an advisor and a customer to see their household wealth, not your wealth, but yours and your partner's wealth or your family's wealth through different vehicles. We can reduce friction. We can make it straight through. We can solve cybersecurity issues and information sharing issues. We can use technology to help financial service providers prevent straying outside the flags rather than ASIC and us looking back 10 years to fix the problems of the past. For heaven's sake, let's invest in the technology to make those things a thing of the past, let the systems do it. Let's use robots to do things. Let's use AI. There's so much that we can do. I, I'm, on a, on a, I'm on a roll here in Australia. <laughs> we haven't invested enough in this industry. We've seen the, the traditional incumbents leave. Who's going to invest in the future? Hub is putting its hand up and saying, we will invest in technology and data to build a future together with the rest of the industry. That needs to happen. There's a lot to do. Andrew, you've mentioned a couple of times AI, artificial intelligence. It's the buzzword all around the globe now. It's reached that tipping point. But you've mentioned it for Hub24. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on on how that takes you forward? Yeah, totally. We um, use artificial intelligence and machine learning. So allowing a machine to learn, it's really programming a machine or machine learning patterns and dealing with them and coming up with results. So, you know, in the simplest form, we sometimes use machine learning to learn forms or data coming in and actually understand what a client is requesting and actually speed that process up or make it easier for an operator. In that context, the government changed the regulations and said everyone has to get a fee consent from an advisor. Well, they come in in many different shapes and and forms. We could have said to our customers, you must do it this way. Instead, we said, We'll take any form you give us and we'll let the robots work out how to interpret it so that it's easier for the client. So there's an example using AI to make it easier to do the business or reduce friction. More efficient. Yeah. Uh, Another example. So we do a lot of stuff where we take unstructured documents. They might be statements of advice or really long documents, pump them through a machine learning module and out comes a set of data that's useful. This was the recommendation for the client. This is their target asset allocation or their investment profile. Um, and so, you know, those sort of things allow us to create a database of information from, from a book or an unstructured document. But imagine a world where a financial advisor is delivering that document. We can strip that out for them. We can actually check, is the client actually invested in the right assets? We can say, you're outside the flags. You might want to check this. Rather than the old world, you'd do audits on advisors, you'd take months and then you'd do remediation. Uh, let's actually find out or prevent errors. That's two simple examples. The, really, the thing I'm really excited about now is, is using AI or machine learning to take a conversation. Let's say we took this interview and we put it through a machine learning module. Could it strip out of the video or the audio my sentiment, your sentiment, what we discussed, what you recommended? Could it create a record that we could rely on in a court case to say that we delivered fiduciary advice to a fiduciary level for a client? 
because the government's talking about changing the rules and the burden for financial advisors. You don't need to do a statement of advice perhaps in the future, but you do need a record. And so can we create the record from an interview or from a video and make that easier so that it means an advisor can see more customers and they've got that confidence? But can we use the data from that interview or that record to actually check that things are on track or actually issue an instruction? That's what's really exciting about making it easier. You can see more customers, you can get the job done, you can check if you're straight outside the flags and it's all about technology and what the buzzword is with artificial intelligence. Um, by using those sort of data points to create new ways of doing business. And how should we measure you? We, we talk a lot about funds under advice, which the numbers are always given. I'm we talking both. about as an investor now. How should we measure your success? So today, funds under administration for us is probably the key driver, but you'll see more and more services revenue. We've got a software business. We've got several software businesses which, which are in the same ecosystem. Number of customers, number of advisors, funds under advice and services revenue you've got about related a qu- to that. quarter of the market that uses you, is that right? A bit, there's over 4,000 and there's what, there's 15 or 16,000 advisors? 4,026 advisors as at, as at last reported count. Uh, it's about 25%. We've got access to or arrangements with licensees that give us access to 7,500 which is just under half the market. Um, the big competitors in their heyday had had seven and a half thousand advisors writing their products. So we're we're, not, we're just over half of that at the moment. So lots of room to move. But I think we'll be measured more than just FUA or funds under administration. It'll be be by the software services we wrap around that. So different revenue streams adding to the whole. Yeah, but making it more efficient. If we can make advisors more productive, we should get more FUA per advisor because we're making their life easier. And we're, we're helping them service more Australians. So the demand for advice is exploding in Australia and this country is not delivering to it. Measure us on that. How many customers can we deliver advice to as well as the funds under administration? Well, a, lot of, a lot of those regulatory changes have taken advice um, beyond the average mm. person in terms of, when I say average, I'm talking about average um, wealth. Cost is, is Cost, prohibitive, yeah. Yeah, it's only, only the wealthy. So if you can provide a solution for that or help people. We can help with technology. We can help licensees and advisors build uh, digital services as well as the, the human service. You might call it bionic as opposed to robo or hybrid. Um, but uh, certainly I think there's a lot that technology can do. I do think that as a country we should actually think about how government regulators and industry build a blueprint and think about strategic goals for the industry as a whole as opposed to regulating and looking in the past. That's a controversial statement, but I think as a nation, if we worked that way and thought about where do we want to be and all participants helped, we'd, we'd be in a much better position. Yeah, I think the regulation's been pretty heavy in the last seven, eight, nine years that we've talked about, and a look to the future where there's growth and opportunity is probably the way to go because we've regulated to the point where most things work okay, I think. It's getting better, it's more professionalised, but you can't keep looking backwards uh, and you can't keep... Yes, we need enforcement, we need people to not break the rules, but I think where there's unclear regulations, it means how do you invest capital to grow this industry? Um, The other one, uh, also measure us on expanding profit margin, absolutely, revenue and profit margin growth. If we don't deliver that, then we're not not doing the right thing. Very good. So the future's bright. I hope so. We're certainly going to give it our best shot. All right, let's change gears a little bit. In 2021, you gave an excellent interview to Boss Magazine at AFR, which covered a lot of the issues that we've been through with the business. But it also, you you, um, deliberately made the statement that um, as a CEO, you are in a position in your private life where you live with another man. And I thought that was quite interesting um, in the sense of where we are in terms of 
uh, people in the workforce and, and what they should have to reveal. I was I was interested in your motivation for going public with it because it shouldn't really matter. Um, you want the best people to do the best jobs and you've done a great job. So maybe give us a little bit of background about the motivation about sure. make because obviously deliberate and you wanted to make them. Oh, it was a difficult decision. It wasn't actually easy for me. We actually uh, had agreed we'd do the boss interview uh, because of Hub's growth. And so, you know, Boston's a leadership magazine. It makes the leader of a business quite interesting. Uh, and at the time we agreed to do it, that wasn't on the table, the the story about private life. Uh, so that was your decision? Uh, they asked and I sat back and thought about it. It was actually a difficult decision because I didn't want to contaminate my professional achievements with a personal life. I didn't want to have some people uh, think twice or differently about me or actually cause any concern for the business or its customers because at that time uh, the world was different. And that's, you know, a few years ago. It, you know, it's changed dramatically in that short period of time. So it was difficult for me. Um, it was unspoken. People knew. Uh, but it wasn't something we talked about or people guessed or suspected and it wasn't something I, I paid attention to. So it was a you, difficult You mean process. mainly at work? At work, yeah. Yep, yep. So, so in terms of just work, we'll keep it to that level, it was important to um, come out and say, look, I live with a man and this is who I am. In that, in that instance that you wanted to let everyone know who you were and, and to be honest about, and so they knew what they were getting because you told us on a day-to-day basis you don't leave people in doubt. You know, it was about leadership. I, th- I think it actually helped me uh, as a person, as a leader in a great way. And, and you know, the headline, which I didn't want, uh, one of the headlines in the article on the digital round was, you know, why coming out makes you a better CEO, makes Andrew Alcock a better CEO. That was the headline I didn't want. It so that was really a bit about, upsetting? It was, it was, it was uh, something I had to own and wear. I actually had text messages from people within minutes saying, I'm so thankful you're my mentor, this is really great. <laughs> so I got accolades back uh, and personal notes from people who, who were proud of what I'd done. And I didn't do the interview for that. I did the interview to talk about leadership and authenticity and some of the stuff we talked about earlier about people at Hub and how we are and, you know, we're, we're not irreverent but we're real people and we're excited about what we do and we don't hire the, the scoreboard people as much as the purpose people. Uh, and so it, it was important in a leadership article for a magazine to say, hey, I've had to learn to be me. And when you're you, you can have people follow you or work with you. You can have reciprocity. I can wear my heart on the sleeve and be vulnerable and say, hey, can you help me with a problem? Because I'm a whole person. It doesn't mean I have to brag about it or talk about it too much. But, but being yourself and people understanding who you are and not hiding something uh, allows you to, I think, grow and, and, and walk more comfortably in your shoes Best thing I ever did. I think oh, so I am a far better person because of that. Yeah, and you, you what? Your energy levels are up. You, you communicate better with people. You interact better with people. Well, how, you're not dodging you questions or avoiding stuff or having that uncomfortable silence. You're able to own who you are. But I'm not labelled. I don't think about uh, you know my preferences and, and my relationship at home in any ways any different to anyone else. I don't see things the way a lot of other people do. I haven't had that adversity. But the fact that it's out there means it can't be used against you or for you. It's just who we are. And let's turn it around and Mm. and say what did it mean to the general community? You've talked about incoming calls and emails and the like. But do you think Australia, as as corporate Australia, needs to um, know that a CEO um, lives with another man or, you know, if it's a woman, another woman, or their sexual orientation is different to the mainstream? Is that something that the community's passed? We had this long oh, debate yeah. about same-sex marriage, which in the end uh, got passed incredibly well. 
And that was a surprise to some conservatives. So has Australia moved past that? I think certainly the media is is not making as much of this as at all at all as it used to. I don't think it's necessary. I, it, it shouldn't be necessary. I think that um, at the same time, uh, you know, I've got nothing to worry about or be ashamed of, which is the, the stereotypes we get from history. And did you feel that when you were younger, working in different environments? Um, in other words, I'm trying to work out whether as a society we've progressed in you know, accepting you know, everyone comes to work. Yeah. I'm a bit unique because I was married. I've got three children. Uh, and so, you know, at, at, a, at middle age, um, my life changed. I had to deal with something that, that was always there. Um, but I probably had more stereotypes or concerns about it myself than the average population because of the religious background, the Bible college, mm. the leafy North Shore. I uh, wasn't living in Darlinghurst. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I had my own hang-ups and getting rid of those hang-ups was quite empowering. So I don't think we should have to. I don't think it should be an issue if we do, though. Uh, and I think we have moved on quite a bit. And, you know, as I said, I see people as people, regardless of race, age, background, demographics. I don't think that way, but I know others do think differently about different backgrounds. I think that it's refreshing that we're moving on from all of that, whether it be, you know, gender, sexual preference or, or, or you know, ethnicity. Um, I, I, I think it's refreshing that you can be who you are in this country and it's not an issue. It doesn't have to be a pro or a con, so to speak. Um, but... Doing that and actually being authentic and how having people see who you are, it does allow you to lead and work together and build camaraderie, which is the success in any high-performance business. You need it. Well, I'll say well done on that. I enjoyed the article and well done. Oh, thank for, you. For um, deciding to go ahead and talking about it. I just want to say also well done on a great 10 years. I know you're energised. You're ready to go for, I won't say another 10 years, but... For a long you never know. And the future sounds very bright. And we say thank you very much for coming in today and sharing your story with us. Well, thank you for having us. It's uh, it's a pleasure to talk about Hub24 and my role in the business. I absolutely would encourage everyone to find a role that works for you and lines up with your principles and who you are and enjoy your job. It's definitely worked for you.